Um, If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. This is going to be our last in our series in Acts for the moment. We're going to take a break and then um, in probably January we're going to come back to it. Um, But it's a pivotal moment because uh, we get introduced to a character called Saul who uh, plays a very important part as we go forwards in in the series. So um, this is going to be great and I'm going to ask Hannah to come up and read us the scriptures. Meanwhile, while Saul was uttering threats with every breath, he was eager to destroy the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was nearing Damascus on, his, on this mission, a brilliant light from heaven suddenly beamed down upon him. He fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to, you are to do. The men with Saul stood speechless with surprise, um, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground. He found that he was blind. So his companions led him back by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and all that time he went without food and water. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you arrive, ask for Saul of Tarius. He is praying for me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed um, Ananias, I've heard about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And we hear that he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest every believer in Damascus. But the Lord said, go and do what I say. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for me. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may get your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and was strengthened. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) Wonderful. That thing there, I think, is really boomy. Is that on? There's a... Okay. Cool. 
Excellent. On September the 27th, 2016, an event took place that would have an impact throughout all the nations. This event caused a, a, a paradigm shift that would eventually affect the whole country on the, and every country on the planet. Perhaps in a moment it felt relatively insignificant, yet it will prove to be a pivotal moment in world history. One that will have a resounding impact across the globe. Do you know what that was? <laughs> it was the day Sam Allardyce was fired and Southgate was hired. The, um, you should always do your prep after the main match. <laughs> uh, this was an important day, wasn't it? Because you think, if he hadn't been fired, Sam Allardyce, uh, Southgate wouldn't have been hired, and then the whole kind of trajectory of England's kind of perspective and hopes would have been very different. So this was a pivotal moment, and maybe it's not quite landed yet, but one day we'll turn back and say, yes, that was the moment that it happened. And peppered throughout history, there are pivotal moments. 1st of September, 1939, the Second World War began. There was a moment that had a resounding effect throughout all of history. August the 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King st stood up and gave his speech. That was a moment in time that had a resounding effect and continues to have a resounding effect around the world. And even peppered throughout biblical history, there's moments that have had a resounding effect even on us today. Think about the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments from God to Moses. Whether you like it or not, that has had a massive effect and continues to have a mess massive effect on us today. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. All of these are profoundly important to us, even today. Or think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not just a pivotal moment in terms of human history, but on a cosmic level, this is a profound moment. It's the moment where death was swallowed up in victory. It was the moment where darkness was overcome by light. It was the time where good overcame evil. Christ won for us on that cross freedom from our sin and made a way for us to come back into relationship with God. That's a pivotal moment in human history. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact that the story we've just read has had on human history as well. Why? Because Saul became known as the Apostle Paul. And most of your New Testament, the second half of your Bible, was written by him. And he explains to us a lot of, 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 of the heart and the mind of God in profound ways. And so as we read through the letters that Paul wrote to different churches across the area, we find the heart of God. We find kind of insights that we would never have had without him and probably if you go to a wedding certainly in a church people will be quoting him if you go to many other places throughout the world and in any other places you will find that Paul is quoted an awful lot so this is a pivotal moment
because he wasn't on that trajectory all of his life. So today we're going to spend some time looking at this man called Saul, who becomes known as Paul. So I'm very sorry if sometimes I say Saul and sometimes I say Paul. It's just a mix-up, but it's the same person. It's just um, two different names for him. So we're going to see what happened before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're going to look at what happened when Saul met Jesus. And then we're going to look at what happened after Saul met Jesus. And throughout this morning, what we're going to notice is that God's grace is just entwined in all of this. The grace of God, the undeserved kindness of God. It's all about that. And hopefully, that's not a separate point. It's part of what we're talking about throughout the whole of the morning. So... Before Saul met Jesus, I've got a little subplot or, or subline called uh, a warning to the righteous. Meanwhile, Saul was still uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogue leaders in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So, uh, as I said, we've been going through a series in Acts, and this isn't actually the first time we've met Saul. There's snippets of him uh, in a couple of um, chapters preceding this, but we haven't spent much time looking at him because we knew we were going to meet, meet him properly here. We first meet him in Acts chapter 7 when uh, a man called Stephen is stoned to death after he testifies about what Jesus has done. Stoned to death. And we're told that Saul was standing looking after the coats of the men that were throwing stones at Stephen. Approving of what was happening. There was a sense of he was looking over what was happening and, and saying, yes, I'm pleased with this. That's the first time we meet him. Then in Acts 8, verse 3, we read that Saul began to destroy the church. And the word destroy is quite an interesting word because it's not just kind of ruin the church. The word destroy is, is, is a kind of word used to describe how wild beasts like a, a, a wild boar or a lion would attack their prey. It would bite into them and rip it from side to side until it died. And that's the word he chooses to use. He was looking to destroy the church. And what um, Luke, who wrote Acts, is wanting us to see is that Saul was filled with fury and hate for the Christian community. And he made it his mission to eradicate anyone that would say, I am a follower of Christ. He went from house to house, we told in chapter 8, looking for Christians And when he found them, it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman, he would drag them out, put them in trains, and take them to Jerusalem. He treated the Christian believers more like animals than human beings. A couple of weeks ago, Claire uh, Paulson was speaking. She she was brilliant. And uh, one of the many points, I was like, wow, that's really cool, was uh, she talked about what, what it meant for the church to be scattered I don't know if you remember this. And there's two, I'm just going, I'm going over old ground, but there's two types of scattering. There's the kind of scattering that happens when people are trying to run away as quickly as possible. I live opposite a venue that gets hired out every now and then. And then at, at the end of the parties, 
normally, like everyone spills onto the street and sometimes you'll get a, a bit of a fight going. Or in Coscutter, there's a fight going on. And uh, it seems to kind of, kind of go on and on until suddenly you either hear or you see the blue lights come in. And then suddenly everyone scatters and you don't know where anyone is. And you would think that when, uh, when, when Luke is talking about the church getting scattered because of persecution, because people are getting stoned to death for what they believe, you would think that the kind of scattering you were getting was a running away. But he uses this word scatter that's more like a farmer scattering seed. It's more of a, there you go, go and grow, go and produce fruit. And it's a clever little play with words, but it's, it's really interesting. And Saul saw that actually he had started going to Jerusalem and a little bit further, but he saw that these churches were getting scattered, these believers were getting scattered, and he knew that that meant they're going to grow. And so he made it his, his objective to go to the farthest ends and find any person who's testifying to what Jesus had done to go and drag them. He was a bit like, you know, like when uh, you've got a fox and a hound. He was like a hound chasing after the foxes. He was bent on stopping this Jesus movement carrying on. And I, I, as, as I was preparing, I, I, wanted to, I just felt like we should take a warning from the way Paul was to make sure that as Christians, we don't become like Paul. Okay? See, on paper, Saul, Paul, was a great example of a respectable religious man. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to use this a couple of times, so if you've got a Bible and you want to look at Philippians chapter 3, that's, that's great. Philippians chapter 3, he says, well, Paul gives a bit of a biography of his life before he became a Christian, before he gave his life to Jesus, before he met Jesus on that road. And in a little while, we'll look at the biography he gives after it. But he gives this biography and he says that he was, um, if, if anyone had confidence in their own self-righteousness, their own standing as a human being to be a good example, it was him. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What that's telling us is that he was brought up in a, in a, a good Jewish family and he was raised well. He said, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Um, if ever there was a proper Hebrew, I was him. He said, not only that, but I was a Pharisee who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. So they made up laws to make sure that they were abiding by the law of God. They were serious about making sure they didn't make mistakes. As for zeal, he said, I harshly per persecuted the church, which is what we saw at the beginning of this. And as for righteousness... I obeyed the law without, without fault. So you could say on paper, Saul was the perfect, respectable Jew. But he lacked something very significant. And that was an understanding of grace. He couldn't understand how God could be holy and just and righteous in every single way. And at the same time, be loving, compassionate and gracious. For Saul, you couldn't have both. How can you have high standards on this side and care for people that don't have high standards like that? Because you're mixing the things up. That's how Paul saw it. And so he thought, forget the grace. I am going to build my life on doing good things, on living properly, on looking respectable, on doing all the things that I think God would expect me to do. 
And that's what he built his life on. But if you do that, what you find is you get this warped sense of right and wrong in which Paul thought it was right to hunt down Christians and kill them. You think, what on earth? How did that happen? There you are. You're trying to do, live righteousness. You're trying, you're trying to be good. You're trying to, uh, to please God. And you're ending up dragging men and women away. And how does that work? And, uh, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how, how often do we do that as Christians? How often uh, can the church be accused of standing for this kind of high standard... And not caring about grace and, and loving other people. Because it happens a lot. You see, we live in a post-Christian world. That means the majority of people you meet on a day-to-day basis would not have grown up coming to church on a Sunday, for example. Maybe their parents did, but they didn't. They don't have much understanding of what the Bible says or, or kind of Christian ethics. Because we're a post-Christian society. We're also a post-truth society. Do you know what post-truth is? It's quite an interesting one. It's quite a debatable one. So what happens is, I could give the perfect argument for a particular thing, and I could construct it in such a way that you could come to me and say, look, Chris, I agree with your, with your kind of thesis, your ar- argument. I can't argue against your argument, but there's a problem. And the problem is, it doesn't resonate with me. And because it doesn't resonate with me, I'm not going to go with it. I'm going to do what my heart thinks, rather than what your truth or what your your kind of argument makes out. That's what a post-truth society looks like. And that's the kind of society we're growing up in and we're living in today. And so there's a danger that as Christians, we've got this kind of strong identity that we get from the word of God, and we just get frustrated and angry that other people don't get it, or they don't understand. Or even if they do understand, they don't accept it because that's not how it doesn't resonate with them. And so we need to guard ourselves from just becoming self-righteous. I'm doing it right, you're doing it wrong, and, 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 and hating them. We might not chase them around like Saul. But Jesus said, if you, if you hate someone in your heart, that's, that, that's like killing them. And actually, we, how often? And we need to make sure, because sometimes we will have to stand up for things that we think, that's not right. That's not good for human flourishing. That is not caring for the poor. But we don't, at the same time, hate the person. Okay? I want to contrast Paul's way of doing it, chasing people around, dragging them back to the way Jesus dealt with it. A couple of examples. I always find this story amazing. The woman caught in adultery. She's been found in the act of having adult, like committing adultery. I don't know why the guy's not getting in trouble. But they bring, the Pharisees bring this lady to the feet of Jesus and say, look, she has, has broken the law of God. What are you going to do about it? And, and, and a Pharisee would say, we've got to stone her to death. We've got to get her out of this camp. We have nothing to do with that kind of thing. But what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't turn around and say, well, she can do whatever she wants. But what he did say was, has any of you, is there any one of you that haven't committed a sin? Because if you haven't done anything wrong in your life, then you can accuse her, you can throw stones at her. And we found straight away that there was a scattering. (laughs) 
off they go. Because every single person has fallen short of that standard. So who are we to judge in that sense? Jesus then said to her, go and sin no more. Don't live like that. But it was done in, in a way of grace. It was, it was extended. It was meeting it. She was treated by Jesus like a human being. And we need to make sure that we treat those that we don't even agree with necessarily. We treat them with, huma- you know, they're humans. Another example is Zacchaeus. It's a short man, couldn't see very well, but Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, so he decides he's going to climb a tree. Now, Zacchaeus is a, a tax collector, <clears throat> so he goes around taking money from the Jewish people and giving it to the Romans. That was his job, so he wasn't liked. And uh, on top of that, he would, he, would, uh, he would get more money. So he would kind of three or four times the amount he would charge them and then keep some for himself and give what he needed to the Romans. So, of course, he's despised, he's hated, no one likes him. He's a bad guy. And so he comes into town, and Jesus sees him up in this tree and says, Come down, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you. Now, everyone else is saying, Do you know who that is? That's Zacchaeus. He's an evil man. He's a bad guy. Why on earth would you want to go? And you shouldn't associate with him. You shouldn't go near him. You should tell him off. But Jesus says, no, I want to eat with you. I want to spend time with you. And something, something happened when Jesus and Zacchaeus were spending time together. Because the end of the story is Zacchaeus says, I've sinned against God. I'm going to give half my money away to the poor. And I'm going to pay back four times anything I've stolen off anyone. Something happened. And that is the grace of God. Okay, it's that God's kindness leads us, leads us to repentance. That's what the Bible says. There's something about the grace of God, and I can't even define it, but you know God's been good to you, and it means your life has to change as a result. If we kind of have Christianity where it's like, we've got to do this, you've got to do that. If you're not doing that, you're not meet, meeting the expectations. We will have a pharisaical kind of soul way of doing it, and we want to have a grace-filled uh, faith. Isn't that true? Amen. So, Saul's a man on a mission to root out any followers of Jesus so that he could stop the message of the gospel going into all the nations of the world. His, his trip from Jerusalem to Damascus is about 150 miles. It's, very, it's hotter than it is today. And uh, it takes him about five days. But as he approaches Damascus on the mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I'm not going to talk about this for very long, but you know, when, we're, when people are persecuted for what they believe, and in our country we're, we're, we don't get persecuted in the way that some countries they do, but when people are persecuted... It's Jesus they're persecuting. And there's something, there's something profound in that, actually. In, in, in northern um, Nigeria, where, where people are getting killed for their faith, there's something of Jesus going with them as they do that. And he says, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. It's interesting, we had a, a testimony about a lady, a, a guy whose eye, he was blind, and then he could see today. So his companions led him by the hand into Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So this is the pivotal moment. This is the Gareth Southgate moment. Okay? Saul's life completely changes right here in a lot more of an impressive way. It's not, it's not an ex- easy experience for Paul. For some people, when you, know, you, you kind of think, I had, you know, it was easy for me to choose Jesus to become a Christian, but for ev- not for everyone. <laughs> Sometimes actually choosing Jesus, saying, no, I, I confess that Jesus is Lord, can be a tough situation to go through. He was blinded for three days. He had no food or drink for three days. But this three days were possibly the most glorious days of his life. See, up until this point, Saul had made all the decisions in the story. He called all the shots. He oversaw the murder of Stephen in Jerusalem and looked on approvingly. He decided to get a letter from the high priest. He decided that he would assemble a crew of henchmen to drag men and women away from their homes. It was all coming from him. But then in one dazzling moment, Jesus puts a stop to this behavior. And Saul calls out, Lord. That's the first time Jesus call, uh, Saul calls Jesus Lord. But as you read through your, your New Testament, you'll realize that he always calls Jesus Lord because he, he knows who he is. So at that moment, Jesus begins to call the shots. He says, stand up. He says, go to Damascus. He said, and then you'll have to wait until you're told what you'll you need to do. For every Christian, there, there will be a moment of clarity in which you know you've made a decision to follow Christ. And at that moment, there is an element of giving up your rights to decide what is my life about. And there's a sense of saying, God, Jesus, Lord, I hand responsibility for my life over to you. From now on, I'm going to live to determine and to to work out what your will for my life is. I want to talk to you if if you're not a Christian here today. Firstly, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming. I know it can uh, feel a bit weird sometimes coming into a church and, you know, on such a hot day as well, you could be out in the sun, but you've come here. Um, And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. The question, uh, the main question is, how do you make the decisions in your life. The big, you know, it might be the big life decisions, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do, what we're going to buy, da, da, da. it might be the smaller things. On a day-to-day, how am I going to raise my kids? You know, what, how am I going to spend my, my income? But how do you make the decisions in your life? Do you have a strong set of principles that you, you live to? A code of conduct? And if you do, I wonder where you get those from. And I just thought it would be good for you to kind of go and think about that for a little while. Uh, do you just go with what feels right? A bit like our post-truth society does. It, you, know, you know, there's lots of good things to do, but I'm going to go with what feels right to me. Often what feels right to you is what feels right to a lot of people. And it's kind of dictated by fashion, really, and trends, and what's popular and what's not. 
Or maybe someone else makes all the decisions in your life. But I just, I just thought it'd be a good challenge for you to think, where do, you, where do you make the decisions or how do you make the decisions in your life? As I was preparing, I, f- I, I kind of had a picture of like, a, or like an image of, of a, diff- a, a set of games, a little, a little set of board games. And um, sometimes life can feel like a board game, can't it? It's like, okay, right, it can feel like Monopoly. The plan for my life is to get round as quickly as I can and make as much money, or maybe not as quickly as you can, but make as much money as you can, pay your taxes, of course, everyone's got to pay their tax, but let's just make what we can out of this life. Or maybe life feels a little bit like Cluedo, one big dinner party and you want to get away with whatever you can get away with. Let's just have some fun. Maybe it feels like snakes and ladders. It's all a game of luck, really. No one knows who's going to finish happy at the end. It can, it can feel happy from the beginning. You, you get that first big ladder. They always give you the big ladder first, don't they? And then you get a big snake just after that. Maybe that's what life feels like to you. You just feel like it's a bit like up and down. And it's all just chance. Or maybe, like Sue was talking earlier, it feels like a puzzle. You're just trying to work things out. You, don't, you know, the, you get those puzzles that you can't see what the, the front of the, uh, what the picture is supposed to look like and you're just sitting there trying to work out your life but you don't have a picture to work by. And I just want to say today, I, life's about more than that. God's got plans and purposes for your life. For Paul, the object of the game was to feel confident Confident enough in his own virtue as to not to be scared of God. So I'm going to do as much stuff that I think is righteous and good that God won't be angry with me anymore. And so in, in his biography that I read in, in Philippians chapter 3, didn't he? He said, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. If anyone can stand on their own righteousness, it's me. That was the object of his game. But something dramatic happened after he met Jesus. In Philippians chapter 7, he, again, he goes, I'm going back to this biography, he explains it. He says, Once, I once thought all these things were valuable, like the doing good stuff and, and impressing God. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting them as rubbish, so that I can gain Christ and to become one with him. For a believer, for Paul, for me, my life is about getting to know Christ. It's about having a relationship with him because he's good. Because he made the game in the first place and then he stepped down into the game and we can know him. And uh, I just want to, you know, again, if you're kind of trying to work out what am I living for, I want to propose to you that Jesus is well worth living for. It was such a great time worshipping today and just thinking about the grace of God and the goodness of God and the freedom that comes through Jesus and just thinking, man, Jesus, thank you so much for all you've done in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We can live for this kind of stuff that will kind of last for a little fleeting moment. But actually, I want to live for something that has got eternal value. And that's the glory of God. Amen. So, what happens after Saul met Jesus? 
Saul's taken to Damascus. At the, time, um, at the same time, the Lord speaks to a guy called Ananias, and he says, go and find Saul. He's been, uh, he's been praying in Judas's house. And Ananias says, are you sure? I've heard of this Saul, and I know what he's come to do. So the Lord says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hand on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. So at the beginning of the story, Saul is an enemy of Jesus, bent on destroying savaging, ruining the church. And by the end, Ananias comes to him and he calls him a brother. A brother, part of the family. And actually, that is what coming to Jesus is about. It's about becoming part of the family of God. We're no longer strangers or aliens, but we have a relationship with, the, with, the, with our Father in heaven and with Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what changed in Saul's life? He had a revelation of the grace of God. It's not just about doing this stuff that maybe God will be pleased enough with me. It's about knowing that Jesus comes and does everything for us. Secondly, he's willing to obey Jesus. We don't tend to like the idea of obedience in our society. We think it kind of, you know, it oppresses us and it, it takes away our freedoms. But actually Jesus said, you know, he calls people to follow him. He calls people to obey, to trust him is another word for it because he's, he's got a better way. So often we find actually our freedom just leads to misery, doesn't it? And actually, God has got something bigger for us. And so he says, come on, obey me, listen to me, trust me. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to finish with this. Verse 8 to 10, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Just to say, this is Paul, the apostle Saul, who wrote this. He said this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take the credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And so Paul started off life as an enemy of Jesus, and now he becomes Jesus is his Lord. He's part of the family. He's described as a brother. And I just want to encourage us as Christians, let's not become hateful. Let's not dehumanize those that we don't agree with. Let's treat them as Jesus uh, treated them. Let's eat with them. Let's talk with them and let the grace of God fall on them. Amen. And if if you're not a believer here, if you don't know Jesus, if you're living trying to work out what this puzzle is all about, I just want to say... It's about him. It's about the glory of God. It's about a revelation of the risen Lord Jesus. He does it all for you, so you don't have to do it. And he'll transform the way you live as you put your trust in him. Amen? Should we stand together?
if, if there's anyone here struggling with hate, if there's anyone here that feels, I just get angry when I see my neighbor because of the sin in their life, I feel God wants to pour out his grace on you so you can love them. We're not called to be arrogant and to kind of pious. We're not called to that. We're called to, to truth and grace. We're called to show a new way, a, a new hope. And so if you get angry a lot, I'd love, I'd love us to be able to pray for you. So at the end, you can come to the front and we'll just pray for the Holy Spirit just to come and, and breathe on you fresh. If, you, um, if you're, you know, Sue talked about that puzzle. You've got, you're trying to work out what the piece is. And, and if that's you, if you think, I'm trying to work out what life's all about, I'd love us to pray for you as well. So you're welcome to come at the end. And, uh, and if you just want to be blessed and prayed for, come to the front as well. But I'm just going to pray, and then we'll finish. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us. I thank you that you, you're so incredible. You take us sinners... We might think we're righteous, but we're not. (laughs) Our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's just not worth anything, Lord. But Lord, you take us, even in our sin, and you shine your light on us, your grace upon us. You fill us with your spirit and you say, be new, be made new. And we thank you so much that you've done that for each one of us. I pray, help us to be people that keep preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the grace of God in our lives. I pray for that in Jesus' name. I pray for anyone that is filled with hate. Lord, would you, would you pour out your grace on them? Forgive them. Lord, forgive them and, and empower them to live a, a grace-filled life. And Lord, we just pray for those that don't know you. God, would you just shine your light on them? Lord God, Saul couldn't deny it. <laughs> Lord, I pray that you would just do that thing where they just can't deny it. They just know you've, you've spoken and that's that. So I just pray for this in Jesus' name. Be with us, be with our families, be with everyone in this building today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.